This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence Meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hello, my name is Atul Devdar. I am a rheumatologist at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. And I'm going to speak about a poster that I had at this uh, ACR 2023 meeting. This is Be Agile study on bimekizumab, which is an IL-17A and IL-17F inhibitor for the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis or radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. This was a phase two study. And the reason uh, what we presented here was a five-year data on this study. And this is the only study that I'm aware of where the efficacy was looked at five years in a non-responder imputation fashion. As you know, most of the uh, drug companies, when they would do a study for efficacy, beyond one year, it's almost always observed cases. It's never non-responder imputation. Non-responder imputation is the strictest way you can look at the efficacy that the patient who drops out for any reason is considered to be non-responder. So this was a big study, despite it being a phase two study. It, uh, 303 patients were enrolled into the study. The first 12 weeks was the uh, double-blind placebo control. There were multiple dosages of bimekizumab which were used. And the primary endpoint was at 12 weeks, but between 12 weeks and 48 weeks, it was dose-blind. So 160 milligram and 320 milligram, these two dosages were used for bimekizumab. Uh, for patients with uh, active ankylosing spondylitis between week 12 (coughs) and week 48 and beyond week 48 up to week 256 which is five years it was 160 milligram dose which is the dose which is approved for the treatment of ankylosing spondylitis as we know so at 48 weeks uh, the ASAS 40 response was in about 52 percent of the patients Uh, and by end of the study which is five-year study, non-respond imputation, the SH40 response is 50%, which is quite interesting. The as-observed response is 73%, but the non-respond imputation, and that's the importance of this study, the only study which goes non-respond imputation efficacy all the way till five years. So that's the SH40 response of 50%, which is pretty good. They also looked at ASDAS, and this is ASDAS is a continuous measurement, so this is multiple imputation and the ASDAS went down to 2 and the uh, spinal pain went down to 2. It was starting at uh, 8 uh, when the patients got into the study by end of uh, 5 years the pain, the spinal pain was down to 2 and so all the efficacy endpoints have been looked at either by non-responder imputation or by multiple imputation uh, if it is a continuous measurement. They also looked at the safety, and uh, that's always very important when you do five-year studies on IL-17A and F inhibitor. Uh, IBD comes to our mind, and IBD was uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, The per 100 patient years um, exposure adjusted incidence rate for IBD was 0.8 per 100 patient years. The candida uh, rate was a little bit high, 7.6 per 100 patient years, and these were Almost all of them were oral, vaginal, uh, some of them were esophageal, but there are no cases of uh, systemic candidiasis or systemic fungal infection. 
So overall, uh, an interesting um, end of the uh, course of this study of B Agile, of Bimikizumab, phase two study going all the way up to five years and reporting the data with non-respond imputation, the strictest way one can look at the efficacy. Thank you. My name is Atul Devar. I am a rheumatologist in Portland, Oregon. And at this meeting, I presented the data on Invigorate One study. Invigorate One study is a study on IV secukinumab in the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. As we know, subcutaneous secukinumab is approved for the treatment of psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and the whole spectrum of axial spondyloarthritis, which is radiographic and non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. And now we have completed an intravenous secukinumab study for the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. So this advantage, of course, an IV drug could be that in the U.S., of course, there are certain uh, insurance companies such as Medicare where it is financially, economically suitable for the patient to go on an IV biologic. And secondly, this is IV molecules are generally weight-based. So for a bigger size patient, uh, IV biologic can be better than subcutaneous because it is weight-based. So this was a study done on patients who were diagnosed with axial spondyloarthritis, both radiographic and non-radiographic, and they had to be they had to have uh, been classified according to the SAS classification criteria, and they had to have active disease. So active disease for radiographic axial SPA is BASDI more than four and back pain more than four, and for non-radiographic axial SPA they had to have either positive MRI or positive C-reactive protein in addition to uh, having been diagnosed and classified according to the SS criteria. And there were total 526 large study, 526 patients, equally divided between placebo and IV secukinumab, about 260 each um, in the two groups. The dose of IV secukinumab used in the study was at the baseline, it was 6 milligram per kilogram at baseline, and then 3 milligram per kilogram every four weeks. And placebo, of course, uh, continued on placebo up to week 16 when the primary endpoint was ASAS-40 response. And after uh, week 16, all the placebo patients rolled on to receiving IV secukinumab, but they received only 3 milligram per kilogram, did not get the 6 milligram per kilogram loading at that time. The primary endpoint was ASAS-40, as I said, and it was 41% in the active group compared to 23% in the placebo group and the study continued for up to 52 weeks and uh, there it was 75, this is complete risk analysis, 75% versus 67% patients who switched from placebo to the active drug. There were eight or nine secondary endpoints uh, looked at in a hierarchical fashion, ASDAS, uh, inactive disease and uh, BASFI, bath ankylosing spondylitis, uh, functional index and SF36 and AS quality of life, etc., etc. All of these secondary endpoints were met. Uh, so the study was successful. The safety profile, there was, there were no new signals whatsoever. IBD comes to your, our mind at just about 0.8 per 100 patient years, which is very similar. Candida infections were not much. Uh, this study was done during COVID and there were some smattering of cases who had COVID uh, during the study, since the study was done during that time. But none of the patients uh, stopped the study either because of COVID or IBD or Candida or what have you. 
Uh, there was one death in the placebo. Actually, there was one death in the 52-week uh, part, which was myocardial infarction, unrelated to the study. So overall, um, IV secukinumab seems to be effective in the treatment of axial spondyloarthritis. The interesting news is on 8th of October of this year, FDA approved the IV secukinumab for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis. But interestingly, the dose they have approved is 1.75 milligram per kilogram, which was not even the dose which was studied in, in, in the study that I presented. It was 6 milligram per kilogram bolus and then 3 milligram per kilogram going forward. The reason why FDA did that was they looked at the Cmax, the concentration, maximum concentration uh, IV in the patient's blood after receiving the 3 milligram per kilogram dose. And they discovered that the IV concentration, maximum concentration was way higher than the 300 milligram subcutaneous dose that you and I would use in our daily practice, the subcutaneous dose of 300 milligram. And so the FDA said that we need to give the dose which is equivalent to between 150 and 300. And they did uh, these uh, studies on the paper and then they came up with this 1.75 milligram per kilogram and that's the dose that has been approved but the drug is available now for treatment uh, IV secukinumab for the treatment of uh, axial spondyloarthritis. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. In clinical practice, we get patients with chronic back pain who have imaging features suggestive of inflammation, or degenerative changes. But what if these findings overlap in a single patient? How do we approach the diagnosis? That being said, I wanted to highlight abstract number 1862, which described overlapping spinal imaging features among patients with a diagnosis of degenerative changes of the spine, DISH or diffuse idiopathic skeletal hyperostosis, and radiographic AXPA. The study was a cross-sectional analysis of a real-life cohort of patients referred to a tertiary rheumatology center who presented with chronic low back pain. Their cohort were mostly males with a mean age of 63.2 years, a relatively older group, who had been diagnosed with either degenerative changes of the spine, DISH, or AXPA. When the study investigators compared the thoracic and lumbar spine x-rays and MRIs of the three spinal diagnosis groups, they found a significant overlap of inflammatory and degenerative features. For the results, as expected, inflammatory lesions on conventional radiographs of the thoracic and the lumbar spines were more prevalent in the AXPA group, but it was also seen in both DISH and spinal degeneration groups. Similarly, bone marrow edema was also seen in the thoracic and lumbar spine MRIs of the patients with degenerative changes and DISH. Well, what could be the explanation for these overlaps? There was really no mention of it in the study, but may be worth exploring in future investigations. What's the take-home message we can get from this? Knowing that inflammatory and degenerative overlaps can exist in these three conditions, 
as defined by the study, we should always correlate clinical and imaging findings and consider mimickers of disease, especially if patients would present differently or would not respond to conventional treatment. Since the thoracic and lumbar spines were the only areas imaged in this study, and of course it was probably because this was the only focus of the study, logic would dictate that in clinical practice, if we were considering alternative diagnosis, imaging of additional areas such as the cervical spine or the SIJ or requesting for blood tests would make for a more conclusive diagnosis. But of course, that's a different discussion altogether. And given um, these results, well, we could um, we could wait for further investigations in the future that could help us make a more conclusive um, finding regarding these overlaps. Follow me at Rumorapa and tune into Room now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Sheila Reyes from the Philippines, reporting virtually for Room Now at the ACR 2023. I found an interesting study by the group of Dr. Laura Pasolent, I hope I pronounced her name correctly, from Canada with abstract number 1402, which was presented in the poster sessions earlier today. The investigators aimed to determine whether Expo patients attending their urban rheumatology clinic were meeting the recently published Canadian 24-hour movement guidelines. So these guidelines integrate evidence-based targets for physical activity, sleep, and sedentary behaviors and have three core recommendations. Move more, including moderate to vigorous physical activity, or what's referred to in the study as the MVPA, reduce second sedentary time, and be able to sleep well. Now, in order to, me to measure these outcomes and profile patients, study participants were given a wrist-mounted accelerometer, which was worn for 24 hours in over a seven-day period. And additionally, one of the study objectives included evaluation of whether there was a discrepancy between objective and subjective measures of activity and sleep. So participants were also asked to answer and complete the International Physical Activity Questionnaire. Now, all of the participants met the MVPA targets, which was a minimum of 150 minutes of MVPA per week, as well as sedentary behavior limits of no, no more than eight hours daily. However, only a small portion, about 37.8%, met the sleep target of seven to eight hours of sleep. Now, the results mean that the participants are highly engaged in physical activity and had low minimal sedentary behavior, but they had poor quality. Also, the participants had a tendency to overestimate sleep quality and underestimate their subjective engagement in physical activity. Although the sample size of the study was small and limits strong conclusive data to be made, the finding of poor sleep quality reinforces the fact that 
this parameter continues to affect the quality of life of patients with AXPA. Therefore, further investigations are needed to better understand sleep quality and patterns in AXPA. In addition, longer follow-up may be needed to further validate the results. Follow me at Rumorampa and tune in to Room Now for more reports and videos of the ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you.